If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. I first started following hockey back in the fall of uh, 1976, before many of you were even born. I quickly had to start following the Leafs because they were the only team that was on TV regularly. And uh, too bad Montreal was much better in those days. Uh, very quickly, I learned the roster of the players. I could tell you every single player on the team, didn't matter how good he was, how bad he was, I could go all the way through uniform numbers, starting with one, and give you every player's name. And now, years later, I could still list you that whole 1976 team by name and number. Same thing with the next year's team, 77, 78. But then as one year rolled into the next and the, there was turnover of players, eventually I lost track of who was who. Uh, eventually, I could tell you only the stars. I could remember them, and believe me, they were few and far between in those days. Rick Vive with his three straight 50-goal seasons, Wendell Clark, Doug Gilmore with his 100-point seasons, Anderchuk. Now, it's pretty obvious why I remembered only the stars and not the other ones. It's the people who do things who get remembered. You know, Vive scoring all those goals, Gilmore with all his points. They get remembered. I could tell you all those guys who don't get remembered, but I don't remember them. It may uh, surprise you to realize that the same sort of thing happens in Christianity. I'm going to give you a quick quiz now, and this is a closed book quiz, so don't look in your Bibles. Uh, And the few of you who are keeners, keep your mouth shut. List me the 12 apostles by name. Quickly, give me names. John, okay, you got one. More. Matthew, okay, Mark was not... Luke was not. Judas, Peter, Andrew, yeah, you got five, seven. Yeah, I, I guess Phil. Paul? Okay, he's not one of the 12. Okay, see, out of 12, this, this whole congregation gave me seven, which is actually probably pretty good. Uh, but you do realize almost half of them, nobody remembers. Well, okay, the Keeners might. Now, this is the thing, you have to struggle to remember some of those apostles. Their names rarely, if ever, come up, even among evangelicals. And why is that? Well, obviously, some of the apostles are much more prominent in the New Testament than others. Let's take a quick tour right now through the New Testament and see how prominent each one of them turns out to be. Have you ever considered how many times each apostle is mentioned by name in the Bible? Or how many speaking parts they have? How many of their actual lines have been recorded for us in Holy Scripture? Well, let me tell you. In the four Gospel books, Peter has 31 speaking parts. John has eight. James has four. Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, three each. Judas, the son of James, and Bartholomew, one each. Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, zero. All of Scripture, these these three apostles never say anything that has been recorded for us. As we move on into the book of Acts, we see that Peter continues to dominate. He's mentioned by name 59 times in the book. 
John ten times, James twice, and the other apostles, other than that list of names in chapter 1, they are not mentioned even once. It's kind of strange considering that they're apostles. Peter is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians, and he wrote two letters that are in Scripture for us. John appears in Galatians. John wrote one of the four gospel books. He wrote three letters and Revelation, all in Scripture. James, he was martyred too early to do much. Now, I think we'd be well advised to ask, why is this? Why did this turn out that some apostles become so prominent and others seem to do so little? At least as far as the scriptural record goes. I think you take, I'd like to take you back to the beginning. Back to when Jesus first called his 12 apostles. Uh, look at Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16, uh, which is one of the records of this event. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor." You see what happened here? Jesus had begun his ministry. He was becoming well-known now, gathering lots of followers, some of them serious, others not so serious. And now the time had come to pick his, his core group of 12, who would become the apostles, who would become the foundation for the church. He spends a night in prayer, seeking the Father's will, making sure that his choices will be what the Father wants. And in the morning, he calls his followers to him as disciples, and out of them, he picks the twelve, the core group. This is his core group of specially privileged one, these twelve. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 tells us that all of them were equally empowered by Jesus to cast out demons, to heal diseases. There's no hint that Jesus favored any of these men over any of the others at that time. But as we follow the subsequent course of Jesus' ministry, we see that an inner core group develops within the Twelve. And that is made up of Peter, James, and John. Again and again, we see that Jesus picks these three to go where the others do not. In Mark 5 and Luke 8, the account of the healing of Jairus' daughter. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. His daughter lies at the point of death. And he's coming to Jesus and begging him for help with his daughter. And Jesus goes off to help, and we read in Mark 5:37, and he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Just those three. Mark chapter 9, Matthew 17, Luke 9, we have the account of the transfiguration, when Jesus goes up on the mountain and is glorified before people, and Moses appears, and Elijah appears. And we read this at the beginning of the account in Mark 9, 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. This significant uh, appearance, epiphany before the people of Jesus' uh, glory is for Peter, James, and John only. The Olivet Discourse, the well-known Olivet Discourse where Jesus describes the end times and his second coming recorded for us in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. 
The account begins this way in Mark 13, 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And so this great and important teaching of the end times is given only to this inner core group of Peter, James, and John, and as well Andrew here. And then it is Peter and John alone who are sent to prepare the Last Supper. In Luke 22, 8. Now even James is not with them. And then we have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of His arrest, when He's under this intense pressure. And He goes off to the Garden knowing He will soon be arrested. He's troubled in His spirit. He wants to pray as He waits. And we read in Mark 14, 32-33, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. At that terribly troubling moment for Jesus, the ones he wants with him are Peter, James, and John. So it's pretty clear that within the core group of apostles, there is an inner core group. And it seems that even within that inner core group, there's an inner core. It seems that John is the closest of all to Jesus. John identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved repeatedly. The Gospel of John. The Last Supper, he is the one closest to Jesus, sitting beside him. When Peter wants to know something, he wants to know who the betrayer is, he asks John to ask Jesus, instead of asking Jesus directly. As if maybe he thinks he's more likely to get an answer. John is the one present at the trial of Jesus. He is the only apostle present at Jesus' crucifixion. And it is John to whom Jesus consigns Mary into his care. So we see that the apostles are a core group of Jesus' disciples. Within that core group, there's an inner core group. And even within that inner core group, there seems to be one who is closer than the others to Jesus. And our question is why? Why did an inner core group develop in the apostles? And why was there an inner inner core We saw that when he called and selected the apostles, all seemed to have equal standing. All had an equal empowerment. All had equal privilege and responsibility. None of them stood out from the others. So what happened? Did Jesus just decide arbitrarily to show favoritism to some? I don't think so. I think each apostle started with the exact same opportunity to get close to Jesus as every other apostle. And what separated them was what each one did with that opportunity given to him. How close they got to Jesus was up to them. Now, as we go through the Gospel books, we see these apostles, Peter, James, and John, repeatedly standing out from the group. They're the first in line to do things, which often, in fact, strike us as clumsy things, bumbling things, headstrong, even misguided at times. Peter, for example, he's always ready to jump right into things with both feet, Um, often is not putting a foot into it. When the apostles see Jesus walking on the waters, Peter says, well, call me. Let me walk on water too. And out he goes and uh, soon begins to sink. At the transfiguration, Peter's one who's who's just got to speak up. Oh, Lord, why don't we build tabernacles? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And, And God speaks from heaven to him, basically saying, shut up and listen, Peter. Then there's the great confession you know, Peter's shining moment, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yeah, he's, he's really nailed it there. 
But immediately after, Jesus tells how he will die on the cross. And Peter says, oh, Lord, far be it from you that this should happen. And Jesus comes back with, get behind me, Satan. This can't stand prosperity. So Peter is often seen as this kind of headstrong guy jumping ahead of where he should be. But here's the thing. At least he's trying. He's wanting to serve his Lord, even if he doesn't really understand what's up yet. Even if he doesn't really know how to do it yet, he is in there trying. It's because of his desire, his eagerness to please his Lord that he ends up jumping out like that and sometimes balling it up. See the same kind of thing from James and John? For example, when they're, they're coming to a village of Samaritans who refuse to receive Jesus in Luke chapter 9, and James and John immediately pipe up, asking Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? And of course, Jesus immediately rebukes them. No, they just don't get it. He says, Jesus has come to save lives, not to destroy them. But what was their motive in the first place for asking it? Was it not that they were upset that Jesus had been dishonored? Yeah, they made the wrong call. Their understanding was lacking. But at least they cared enough about Jesus' honor to want to do something. Or when they asked Jesus, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory, we usually take that to mean that they were egocentric or self-serving, selfish. No, maybe. Maybe they were. Or maybe they wanted to be great for Jesus. They wanted to stand by him and do things for him. Because it's significant, I think, that Jesus doesn't actually rebuke them for asking this. He gently tells them it's, it's not for him to decide. It's for whom God has prepared these positions. And then he shows them all how to be great. By serving. And when Jesus is arrested, all the apostles flee. But two of them then turn around and come back. It's Peter and John who come back and follow after Jesus. And Peter, he stays in that outer court there. And yes, he denies Jesus three times. His courage fails. But kind of he denies Jesus three times because he is there to do it. Because at least he followed. He didn't just run away and stay away. And John actually went in. He was actually at the trial and he was at the crucifixion. When Mary Magdalene brings news of the empty tomb, it was only Peter and John who ran there to see what's going on. Whereupon John was the first to believe. Is it then any surprise that these men become the inner core of the inner group? Is it not looking as if it's up to them how close they want to be to Jesus? Any of those 12 apostles could have done what Peter, James, and John did, but it was Peter, James, and John who did it. They are the ones who took full advantage of the opportunity given them by being called into the group by Jesus. You know, James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Now, He is always there, ready and willing to draw near to you, but He will not come nearer than you want Him to. It's up to you how close you want to get to Him. If you want to keep it on arm's length, that's where He'll stay. Now, Jesus said that among believers, some will bear fruit 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. If you want to draw near to God, then you want to do things for Him. You want to please Him by doing the things He's commanded. You want to do what He requires of you. As we look at the beginning of the church, those early years in Acts, again, who is prominent? Who is doing the work? Peter and John. Now, other than the, that apostle list in chapter 1, 
James is mentioned only once in the entire book. Well, he's martyred quite early. But none of the other remaining eight is mentioned even once. There's those who are closest to Jesus who are doing the work for him. Now, at this point, let me give you a proviso. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to run down the other apostles. It could be that they did a lot of good that's not recorded in Scripture. I mean, I don't think Jesus made a mistake in picking them. They probably did stuff for Jesus. In fact, early Christian writings tell us that most of them were diligent evangelists preaching all over the place, and most of them were eventually martyred for Christ. Nevertheless, in Holy Scripture, in the records that God has chosen to give us, it is the inner core that is emphasized. Those who chose to draw as near to God as possible. And this is always the case. It's always the case. You recall in Acts chapter 1, the apostles are together and they're figuring, well, Judas Iscariot, he's traitor and he's dead, and we should pick someone to replace him. And they propose a couple of names, they cast lots, and they end up picking this fellow called Matthias. Matthias is given this wonderful opportunity. He's appointed into that group of apostles, that, that inner core group. It's a great opportunity to draw near to God, to bear fruit a hundredfold for him. And yet we never hear of Matthias again anywhere in Scripture. He just disappears. But on the other hand, you have Paul. Paul was not picked by the apostles, but he was picked by God to become an apostle. And Paul took full advantage of that. He really gave his life over to service, and he became the greatest evangelist of them all. That's the way it is in the Christian life. That's the way it is in the church. It is up to you how close you want to get to God. Everybody has that choice. And what happens in your Christian life is what you do with that choice. It happens that way in churches. When a new pastor comes in a church, for example, he doesn't know anybody. Everybody has the same opportunity to get involved, to be part of the church, to, to grow, to serve. The Bible studies are there for everyone. The discipleship groups are there for everyone. And invariably what happens is that some step forth, like Peter and John. And they take advantage of that opportunity. And they want to serve, and they want to grow, and they do that. And others in the church don't. And then they wonder why they're not in the inner core. And then they gripe about it. Now, in this church, folks, we have Peter, like, people like Peter and John. We have Christians here who want to draw close to God and want to serve God and who are moving rapidly forward in the Christian life. But we also have others who have, not, who have attained to a certain spiritual level and now they're stuck there and it's spinning their wheels. They seem to not want to go further. Still a good element of worldliness in their lives and they don't really want to get rid of that still materialism kind of like we've come so close but no closer we want to stay there and we have some who just don't seem to care at all we're not interested in drawing close to god and not interested in serving but only in being served they have the opportunity to serve and to grow and they are not using it so for all of us i'd like to remind us of the first reading this morning the parable of the two sons I'm not going to say a lot about it. I, I only want to point to one element of it because parables generally can teach more than one lesson. There is the son who at first says no to his dad, but after he changes his mind, he is the one who in the end is doing the will of the father. And I know when, when people become Christians, there's this immediate enthusiasm, this desire to grow, this ardor, and if that's not fed, it tends to fade. 
and diminish. And we can end up spinning our wheels. And we could end up like that son who's in effect saying no, not drawn closer to God. You end up spinning your wheels, happy to stay at this level. For us, it is not too late to change our minds. That son who said no at first realized he was doing the wrong thing and changed. And he is the one who pleased his father. But if you've been living in that state where, where you're so distant from God, you don't want to move closer, you haven't been moving closer, it is not too late to change that approach. You can still take advantage of the opportunity. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Consider James, the brother of Jesus, for example, another character from the New Testament. You look at what happens to him in the Gospel books, and all he does is oppose Jesus. He doesn't take him seriously, he mocks him. It's Jesus' enemy. That's all you see from him in the Gospel books. But we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that the risen Jesus appeared to him. And at this point, James must have realized he was wrong all along. And he had the integrity to do a complete about-face. As you go through the book of Acts, you see that James, in fact, has become a great servant of Jesus, a prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem, author of that letter in the New Testament. It's not too late to turn around and get close to God. But I also remind you of the second reading, the parable of the barren fig tree. That window of opportunity to turn things around is not infinite. Now, if you're not where you need to be in relation to God, don't put off changing your ways. Because you may well be into that fourth year. I think we are. If you have missed any episodes and would like to listen to them, they will all be available on our YouTube channel and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can find the links to these on our website, truthinmydays.com, or you can look for Truth In My Days on YouTube as one word. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.